Welcome to the Political Notebook. I'm Billy Robb, your host. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. And we're very excited today to have two guests with us, two representatives of Domena Public Affairs, a lobbying and political consulting firm here in Phoenix. So we have a senior advisor, Kevin Domena. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here, Billy and Bob. And we have his son, uh, Joe Domena. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And I'm holding in my hand here a mug, a coffee mug that says on it, Nelson, Rob, Duvall, and Domena, because uh, for many years growing up, um, Robert and Kevin worked in a public relations firm together. And uh, Kevin, you left first in 1998. Is that right? From I'm just saying. Well, on the list in the mug, Duval left first. Yes. Fred <laughs> left first. Clinton called, and, and he left. Well, actually, we departed from... Nelson first. Yeah. <laughs> right. we, Shed, there are many other mugs as well. <laughs> we have but, a... Yeah, Shed Nelson, divested. Um, uh, Shed Fred. And then, um, and then, you know, really, it was time for a life change. It was time for me to just go lobby. And Bob had always just written and done it well. And that's how I describe it. So you went to go lobby in 98... Yes. From, I'm just taking this from your, from your guys' we website. We were lobbying before that. So Bob had attempted to recruit me two times, and I was always touched in hindsight uh, as I, I look back on it. And when I finally bit, uh, then it was a real exercise in capitalism. The recruitment part was <laughs> the enthusiasm was warm and wonderful, but I learned a lot with him just about capitalism. And, Dad, you left the next year in 99 from this. From yeah, the, I, I from had the Fold up the agency in order to go scribble for the uh, Arizona Republic and inflict my views on its on its audience. It's been that long. So, yeah. So one one thing one thing that always struggled for me as a kid growing up was the question of what does my dad do for a living, and it wasn't. I'd say I would just say public relations and hope that the other person like knew what that meant. It was a lot easier when I was able to say, "Oh, he just writes for the paper." So, uh, especially for my government students too. Um, I think just the profession of public relations and lobbying is kind of confusing and, and it's a misunderstood aspect. So, Kevin, for the rest of us non-political insiders, what, uh, what, what do lobbying? you do? <laughs> what is so, lobbying? So this is an old question for me um, from the day I met my father-in-law, and, and he's passed on now. He would ask me this question, and we would have the same discussion, which is you can't photograph it, you can't bail it, you can't weigh it. So it's just not that, you know, for the longest time, our website said, we get things done, we solve problems. The reality is lobbying is an advocacy role. If you're going to go to court and you have a large tax bill, you're going to engage professionals that know the process, members of a union, we call it the bar, but nonetheless, they're qualified. Similar risks when you go down to the Capitol, and if you treat with it seriously and you're a sophisticated uh, policy consumer, you would invest in professionals. The role that government has, no apologies for that any longer. In our society, in our government, almost it's certainly the largest sector we can face now. It's bigger than automakers. So having professionals that liaise with government, it's, it's just it's what we do. I can't define the process, but it's where we work. I, I think it's worth noting that not only did um, Kevin and I worked together, um, but um, Billy and, and, and Joe went to school together in, in uh, high school at Brophy uh, Prep here. 
Um, I'd be interested, Joe, in what interested you uh, in joining that profession. Well, yeah, yes, it, we. I did go to school with him. Yes, <laughs> it was uh, it was a good time. And uh, down the street from our office. Yeah, for the most part. Absolutely. And I think you know, ultimately, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with my life uh, until I was almost done with college. Um, and I went to the Cronkite School downtown ASU and realized pretty quickly that journalism was not really my where I was headed ultimately. <laughs> Um, and uh, kind of, you know, took a look around, did a couple of internships at some public relations firms and, um, you know, got a taste for that, but ultimately landed in campaigns, uh, did a, a campaign for Steve Moog for Congress, um, Secretary of State Ken Bennett, his reelection campaign. And then I just kind of a slow meandering back to the, the family business, frankly. And um, Ryan had already found, found his way. That's your older brother? Yeah. Okay. So Ryan and I are partners at Domena Public Affairs, which is the the new iteration of, of Demena and Associates, or, or all things Demena, you might say. Um, and uh, we started it uh, just in, I believe it's May? Yeah. So it's just still, recently, yeah, last it's year? Yeah, it's the new one. It's the succession plan in action. And uh, Ryan had worked in the uh, Senate basement in uh, majority research there. I worked in the House basement. Um, and so we had, you know, it was just kind of a and simple... We got over that. This guy, you know, it's somebody had to go to U of A, somebody had to go to ASU. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in right. Joe's case, being a house staffer, um, we still let him in the club. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else in the office is from the Senate. Right. But I, well, I yeah, Kevin was a Senate staffer when I first met him. So And our pages, are, yeah. our, our other staff, our yeah. ex-pages from all Senate. And over. you're all on board to kind of join, join forces and That's right. bring the crew together. Yeah. But but and just to finish the thought, it was really important for for me. I, I when I finally was old enough and realized what I was looking at with the Demena name and the political realm that is Arizona, um, it became really clear to me that there was a leg up. There was an advantage there, and and it was something that I really needed to take a you know take some time and look into. And obviously, it's grown to be a fruitful operation. And um, and yeah, so so I'm still. I wasn't totally satisfied with the answer, just as a, just as, just so I know, like, okay, if my government students are listening right now, I think they still have no idea what a yeah. lobbyist actually does. So let's say I'm a, you know, I'm a business or something, or, sure. you know, any, anyone, you can even give us uh, some real examples of your clients or some issues you work with this week. But I go to you, I say, why, I mean, why would I go to you guys and what would yeah. you then provide in terms of a service? Let me give you a quick example of, of one that um, just happened recently. The UPS stores of uh, several UPS stores throughout Arizona, um, through Rule, um, are were only allowed to charge up to I think it was three dollars mm-hmm. for uh, notary fees. Um, and so, if you think about it, for a UPS store in December, you've got a line out the door, and you've got people in line. They're going to take up all your time for three dollars a pop when you're you know, shipping stuff out for Christmas. So that's a real burdensome thing for their business. So we had the UPS stores reach out to us and we started talking to Secretary of State uh, Michelle Reagan and worked with her and sh- uh, uh, worked with her to propose a rule change that would allow people in Arizona to uh, 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 charge up to $10. So it wouldn't be limited to three. And um, that's something that will be effective. And I think it's about 60 days yeah, from but, now. But this is a great observation. So, so if the government decides to protect us from bad haircuts, the barbers are going to organize. And presumably, the people that get their haircut will organize. And this is really no different than that. The way this opportunity emerged, I think you were in the UPS store. Mm. And any observant customer 
would note that because they're contractually required to be mm -hmm. a UPS franchisee to offer notary services, but that isn't where the money is. Right. Since government has chosen to regulate and protect us from runaway notary pricing, decision made long before we arrived, we are the folks that come in and try to navigate through that regulatory framework. We can try to tear it down. Mm -hmm. That's a good column. But as a practical matter, we have to navigate through it. So UPS got a problem. They're being uh, not able to charge enough for this certain thing. Mm -hmm. They say, hey, how can we, how change, can we change the law? The law? Right. Uh, and that's a complicated process. They might not be able to do it on their own. So you go to you guys, and you guys, um, what... Yeah. What do you do? You call, you just call the Secretary of State and say, Well, this one was hey. a special, this was a special <laughs> one since, you know, well, every elected official is a unique person, um, mm -hmm. always. This was a special one because it was a, a rule change. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, we, we deal with uh, legislative, you know, statutory changes. Um, so I don't know. A Dan better example might be, and one that Bob's aware of, every year the state, for convenience, conforms to the changes made under the Internal Revenue Code by Congress. That's a pretty mundane statement normally, but at this moment, one of the hottest topics in the country is the tax reform battle at the federal level. Arizona isn't unique in terms of we're not a high local tax, low local tax state. We don't stand out in terms of problems that need to be fixed. But that conformity legislation is essential for Arizona taxpayers mm -hmm. so we don't keep two sets of books. We represent Arizona's CPAs. The Society of CPAs wants nothing more to ensure that there is only one set of books, despite the fact that they charge hourly and two sets might be profitable. It's just bad tax policy. Mundane, mm -hmm. not center stage, but of the 1,200 bills that will be introduced this year, that's one of 300 or so that must go and, and will go. How it gets to that spot is a... And your your website says you read all the bills. You, are you going to read who reads the twelve, say twelve hundred or twelve? This guy over here. Well, I mean, we all we all take a brunt of it, but so so your dad is why I do that, and and I don't know if he remembers this. I conversation. apologize. <laughs> he ruined my eyes, <laughs> but he would do what everybody does, and he he cherry pick, and he'd come and he'd ask me. And, and I don't read the cherry pick stuff. That's, that's sensational. But basically, you were my best sample. And at one point, you said, wouldn't it be simpler? And that started a long road that went from paper with scribbles on each corner. The most important thing about that, Billy, and Joe knows this, is that the best things in these bills are not in the titles. They're buried in Section 23. Hmm. And, and I like being that firm, yeah. we'll always be those guys. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> and one, one question I really wanted to ask with some, uh, you guys are political strategists, uh, and everyone knows that digital technology is disrupting so many industries. And I know that when Robert and Kevin started, um, I just assumed they were using like a printing press to distribute pamphlets or, or whatever. I'm not sure when <laughs> you guys- Copy and paste was actually <laughs> copy and paste, yeah. I'm not sure when you guys, what the technology like was when you guys started, but um, I mean, how has the game changed now in terms of uh, a, a quill and a scroll? A quill is that bad, huh? <laughs> but seriously, we were using Scotch tape, Paul Art. I mean, copious amounts of Scotch tape and markers and arrows and 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 xeroxing, copying. But 
I mean, that was your shop. I, I walked into that. I don't know that the creative crew was ever my zone. So, the, the, I mean, the creativity, meaning like producing advertisements and is These that what you're... These Billy, anybody can do this. Right. I mean, you want to be a graphic designer? Get your webpage up. This was deep. This was a bench. These were people... You guys had a guy at the end of the hall that would create graphics and, and stuff. And he was just there. Was... We were unusual. Who is this you're talking about? In terms about? of a public affairs firm, I, we had an in-house um, graphic design creative team. Um, that was unusual for a public affairs firm. Uh, most public affairs firms contracted that out. Uh, but I, uh, it, it was at not the heart of the lobbying end of the business that Kevin was responsible for, but in terms of the public education or the grassroots uh, development uh, or the public relations side of it, um, that was the key product. And I wanted to control it. And, and I found someone uh, I, in, in terms of our creative director uh, whose judgment, uh, Paul John, um, one of our uh, partners once said that neither the neither Paul or my parents could afford a last name, so that's why I was Bob Rob. He was Paul John, um, but I had absolute confidence. We had a good working relationship, and I just wanted to keep that since it was so central to our success in house rather than contracting it out. It's a great idea. I'd love to have that. And so, see how that bleeds over into what we pitched then as cross disciplinary approaches. Mm -hmm. So for uh, a lobbying effort that's perhaps meeting more resistance than we thought, we would simply identify um, voter contact strategies. And this at the time was quite novel. The voters would then call the elected official and AstroTurf would become grassroots and votes would move. And it was quite the thing. I look back on it now and it was quite the thing. But, but it was really... Um the infancy of targeting. Our, our targeting was pretty uh, broad. Republican primary voters. Uh, and uh, what's changed so much in the field from when I was doing that as opposed to writing a column is the extent to which micro-targeting has been taking place. So now rather than Republican primary voters, you can target left-handed Republican <laughs> primary voters who like to bowl and subscribe to a particular magazine. It's just um, unbelievable. And, um, and it has become, uh, for that reason, a young person's profession, uh, very much um, political consultancy is um, for the young, and particularly people who are very comfortable with the changes that have occurred in the media climate. And I saw that on your description, Joe, is that you've done social media, or you do social media for now. So maybe what what is that like? What are you looking to do? And Yeah, I do. A, so I do a lot of social media for uh, uh, different clients. Um, it, it obviously depends on what it is they're trying to achieve. But um, a lot of times it just uh, has to do with association building and building a presence um, and a legislative presence, um, as well as co-branding with our firm, um, I think a really good example would be the Arizona Dispensaries Association. You know, um, uh, prior to uh, losing Prop 205, um, they weren't really concerned about having an association. 
um, you know, doing the things that a normal association would do. They were really concerned about legalization. Um, but after 205, it became pretty clear that um, with that defeat came a, a lot of potential attacks on the current medical marijuana um, program in Arizona. And so, you know, in addition to needing to uh, lobby up, they also needed to start really being serious about building the association. So the social media is, is sort of an arm of that mm -hmm. um, and building a presence. But Joe, that also speaks to, I mean, the cannabis growers weren't just going to call me. Joe... This is a generational shift in both the business, the economy, for that particular issue as well. But the social media track, every one of these businesses, every dispensary has a social media coordinator in the, the same way that they have a head cashier. And for Bob and for me, that's still new. Uh, it's a little bit like Apple and buying a song. For us, that's still quite a treat because <laughs> it used to involve a trip down to the record store. The perspective is useful. So I, I grant the point. It is your world now. I wouldn't want to touch anything with that many dials on it. Really. <laughs> He's looking at my mixture here for the, yeah, but for there the is. I wouldn't want to touch a lot of them either. <laughs> <laughs> but the Groundhog Day effect uh, holds true, uh, the Bill Murray version, not the yeah. seasonal version, which is that the longer we're around, if we're paying attention, we should be getting better at this. Bob is a better writer than he was when I first met him. Let's not go down that path. And presumably, I'm better at what I do. So you guys are the ones that are telling stories, though. You guys are the ones wiring and communicating. This is the last you're going to get to hear from this great generation. In Arizona, you know, Bob and some of our past partners are, are people that I admired before I was able to do business with them. We have a generation ahead of that, which includes people like Art Hamilton and Alfredo Gutierrez and others that are not going to be with us for that long. And then, when Bob and I are gone, then it's all the internet, social media, and the old ways will be dead. Yeah. So you, you mentioned 205, that was the legalization, that thing was on yes, the ballot. Yes. Did they? Did people come to you to try to get votes for that? Or no, we didn't have anything to do. Yeah, we didn't have anything to do with the uh, the 205 effort. Um, we, we were just kind of watching, and we had been doing a little bit of work for a couple different dispensaries during that, but... Um, but yeah, it was really just afterward that uh, I came out and explained to them why that was ne it was necessary for them to, to lobby up. Because you felt like they were going to get kind of attacked. Yeah, and, and, and there was also a surplus. The Arizonans for Responsible Drug Policy had raised so much money to defeat 205, they'd had a lot left over. Mm -hmm. And there was a big concern that they would you know, start lobbying. So, um, and Another new sort of morphing of policy management, which is campaigns that raise excessive amounts, can also then morph into an off-cycle lobbying effort, right. just a different way to change the law. Yeah. So are you, so in terms of the social media strategy right now, like for them, are you trying to shift, are you trying to make ads, put that on there to shift public opinion yeah. about F marijuana? Or? For them, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. It's a two track. First of all, they didn't have any social media at all. So I just basically created that for them and uh, I manage it. I'll, I'll put new stories out. Like uh, Facebook, Twitter, yeah, Instagram. Yeah, I do, I do, usually I do the trifecta. I'll do Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You tend to get all of your demographics with those three. Um, and what I'll do is I'll put out relevant news, uh, you know, stories, um, things that, um, timeliness yeah, is timeliness critical. is super relevant, um, uh, really critical. And then, um, anything that's happening legislatively during the session, I, I also plan to basically broadcast it out. Mm. And, um, you know, it's really interesting too, because just going back to social media in general, looking, looking at my, uh, account and the people I'm following legislatively, cause the public affairs has uh, an account on all these as well. 
it, it's there is definitely a meridian of of the of the age. You know, you've got a lot of younger people who have a big presence, and then you've got the older people who you know maybe don't have as much of a presence, or it's a little spottier. <laughs> Every time I write a column, yeah, <laughs> under orders, <laughs> yeah, under orders. <laughs> from the Arizona Republic. <laughs> So, so you've got you've got that strategy making yeah. making ads, and then it sounds like you're also kind of sharing news that you find about exactly. that. Um, so I assume you're kind of monitoring what's going on, in like Colorado, and I'm yeah. sure it's going to be a a lot of information coming out from California and Jeff um, Sessions, and you name it. The for, yeah. for cannabis in general, it's just like so, incoming all. At to all me, times. it seems like we're going. I mean, just backwards with that. At the I mean, at the national level, it feels like you know we have these. Um, in government class, we call it laboratories of democracy at the at the state levels, and it's like um, you guys are. I mean, under attack. Yeah, the, you know, I think uh, so. It, this is definitely the thirty-two-year-old perspective of this. <laughs> just to be clear. So I think it's it's important to to note that we are a, a medical state only. So there is um, a, a little bit of a protection in in that, but. Um, but yeah, there, every, everyone's hair is on fire right now about that, to be completely honest. And, um, you know, we're not going to rely on the political shakeups that will occur in DC to take care of it. Um, there have been, a, uh, actually one bill is a kind of a similar to a Rohrbacher amendment that's been introduced by Representative Cardenas. So it's a Democrat's bill, so it probably won't go anywhere, but, um, but there are local efforts to, to take mean, care of that. that Essentially, what it would do is it would uh, not allow uh, any federal authorities to use funds and come in and and, uh, and raid us, basically. It, are there any efforts to try to get the law changed at the, at the national level? at the national level? Oh my gosh, yes. The short version is that the law of unintended consequences. I think Sessions has. Uh, Sessions has rattled everyone's cage so much and has effectively created a sort of state's rights platform mm -hmm. here. So with this change, if they're around long enough to follow through on it, the Sessions crew, we're pretty sure that that's going to push it here locally. In some states, that's bad. Here, the environment is shifting. And the demographics, the data, we did some polling, um, not as part of 205, but observing 205 for our clients at the time, not engaging. And it shows what we now know to be the gospel, that over 60 embraces medical, of course they do, um, and is cost sensitive to it. Under 30 doesn't really support medical that much because at that age, your lawn man or your pool man can bring it by. And really, it's just a legitimacy issue. You don't care for the structure. And then those that are in play, are the uh, white males like Bob and me in the middle, um, who Nancy Reagan primarily educated on drug policy. The way out of this is the libertarians are going to meet the Democrats in two or four years, and we won't yeah. care if you recreate, medicate, or liberate. It'll mm -hmm. be your choice, free to make your own choices. Yeah, now Trump and Sessions have, uh, have the Democrats going to the states' rights mm -hmm. uh, issue <laughs> a little bit. Take it where what we happened? get it. <laughs> Um, so it's not, so you, you mentioned polling. That's another thing that you would go to for a political consultant. I imagine to say like, Hey, where's, I'm trying to do something or I want to, I want to build something. That's where's, him. where's That's public Paul, opinion yeah. that he's pointing at, he's pointing at my dad. <laughs> I, I learned it. I learned it at Bob's the, knee. The art, um, in polling, which I think, uh, has been, 
largely trashed um, by the advent of these instant polls um, is in crafting a question that fairly describes uh, not how the issue is currently perceived, uh, but how it will be perceived. And being able to use survey research to identify the ways in which you can move public opinion rather than treating it as a static uh, statistic. Movements of 20 to 30 percentage points in a ballot measure campaign, which was what we specialized when I was in the firm, are not at all unusual. Uh, and that's why you have so often people saying, as they're saying now with um, a tax increase for education, gee, look at everybody's in favor of that. Well, that was true in 2012 when it lost two to one. That was true in 1990 when it lost two to one. So that's the art of it. And it's not a matter of creating a snapshot and sending it out because public opinion is mobile. The other thing is that the technology changes that we have made uh, have made it very difficult to come up with a reliable sample. Uh, the refusal rate and the inability to connect rate has gone sky high. I mean, that was maybe 20, 25% um, back in the old days. Uh, uh, today, it's two-thirds or higher. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so many polls uh, end up even close to the of an election not being accurate. Um, the other thing is that and a lot of these results are within the margin of error. So uh, if you say someone has a three-point lead, uh, he, he or she doesn't have a three-point lead uh, if the margin of error is five percentage points. All right. So micro-targeting meets polling, which is that if you decide that all the white 60-year-old males in central Phoenix are where you need to go, the micro-targeting and the profiling, the integration of these two disciplines is going to change it fundamentally. It's just about, it's like having an artificially intelligent piece of mail arrive at your door. The best person for crafting questions that I've ever worked with, ever, is, is Bob. And it's that kind of precision. And he described something many years ago, because I live in a visual metaphorical world. It really helps if I draw pictures. <laughs> And really what, what this is, is in many ways, um, is the survey research, is artillery spotting. If we're going to put mail, if you're going to invest in a launch of any weapon of any consequence, with a little additional investment, you can do so with surgical precision. We could mail everyone in the state, and we would probably hit the 30,000 people we wanted to hit, which is a better use of your resources. Survey research polling does that. These current internet trailer questions are destroying the product, the perception of it. I hope that's rehabilitated. Just the internet polls you see? Is that what you mean by the trailer? People tend poll? to equate, I'm going to go with a Bob Rob analogy with a sort of uh, Spalding golf club with a ping. Okay, they both hit balls, but pollsters that do it right do it with ping. Did I get that? Yeah, and, and often the public... The, the level of detail that you have to go into to have a poll be worth anything 
if, given the refusal rates and the do not connect rates, you can come up with a poll anymore uh, that's meaningful, uh, requires um, a lot of time and effort and therefore a lot of money. And for the most part, um, that's, that time and effort is put in by people who aren't going to share the poll uh, because they're using uh, the poll to make strategic decisions, as Kevin described, as to what kind of steps that you investigate in. Um, so uh, I hate to say it, but as a practical matter, if you know about a poll, it's probably not that useful. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I mean, what does that do to, to strategy? And does that just mean candidates maybe have to be just more authentic or saying what they actually think because you can't kind of predict the response to it? I, mean, I think targeting by um, demography and, and interest affiliations is kind of taking the place of doing polls and developing a demographic profile from the poll. And, and you're seeing absolutely. that in uh, particularly the national presidential campaigns. The targeting is, is informed by polling, uh, but that is only one part of the equation where it used to be the whole of it. Right. And targeting is done from a whole variety of different uh, measurements and, and um, demographic and interest affiliations. But it is now, I mean, you could, we can profile you, field and stream subscriptions. Those used to be, right. we would find hunters <clears throat> and NRA members but the accessibility and the cross-referenceability of big data, it really is a menu that's limited by your imagination. Money becomes the deciding factor because all those dropped calls, you just keep calling until you get an adequate sample, which just drives up the cost of the survey. Right. Mobile phones, dropped interviews. I mean, we, we now we run with samples at a minimum about 50% cell phones but we no longer need to find Republicans. I mean, I'm not sure what that is anymore. When I can micro-target, I can do better than just that label. Yeah. I wanna, I wanna add one thing, because your dad, I wanna hear about this. I think there's two new dimensions for polling. One, which uh, Fred Duval in the last gubernatorial election did a good job of, which was their polls that you run strictly for release. You don't even want them in the war room. <laughs> other than to know a press release went out, because if people look at that data, they might not go in the direction they should. That's always been there, but it's more of a thing. And then the kind of one that I think is the most interesting is the survey research as a prospectus. Um, in CD8, where I guess 150 people are running, as a veteran, <laughs> they are separated pretty quickly, uh, and one of the quickest ways to separate them is bank account, and survey research. So CDS, the uh, open congressional seat in, Trent in West Phoenix seat. right now. But the, the last gubernatorial race, I think, is a good illustration of mm. the point I was making about the difference between privately available polls and public polls. The public polls, uh, not only those that um, Duvall was releasing, uh, but those that independent groups were conducting, showed as close as three weeks out uh, that... Uh, the race was a toss-up. The uh, Ducey private polls, um, uh, which I uh, gained access to, um, consistently showed him five to eight percentage points up. 
Uh, and that's because the Ducey campaign had the money and the commitment to do the kind of um, sample control to truly get at who was going to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I say chances are if you read about a poll, it's not particularly useful. Interesting. So let's uh, let's finish with a few minutes talking about uh, Arizona po- uh, politics forecasting a little bit. Um, there's some talk about where Arizona is going to turn blue in uh, um, some of the By some of the races. <laughs> Sorry, the image came to mind as a four year old. Just <laughs> but uh, just some of these congressional spots, especially the open uh, the open seat that that flakes uh, flakes leaving, and um, you know I I keep. I keep waiting for Republicans to shift away from from Trump due to his low ratings and all the other obvious things. Um, but Martha McSally just came out today with a very strong right, um, you know, definitely appealing kind of appeal for the the Trumpism, um, you know, spot um, in the primary. Um, so I don't know where do where do you guys see the direction or the theme of the state the state is heading into into twenty eighteen or are we shifting at all is it still a requirement to to cling to Trump if you're a if you're a Republican or I think the theme is change change for the better I'm going to go with that as my theme but if you're Kate Brophy McGee running for reelection to the Senate against the Democrat Teacher of the Year in Paradise Valley ish area Trump means one thing. If you're Martha McSally in a statewide corner-to-corner race, it means another thing. They all apparently belong to the same club, Republicans. Mm -hmm. The word homogenous comes to mind because it just ain't. So all of that, the backdrop is selling, I I like this, selling snow in a snowstorm. Mm -hmm. Because between Dean Heller, Jeff Flake, and John McCain, there are two out of three Senate seats in this tiny little media market region that will rotate and potentially a third. The financial backdrop of trying to get your message out in this primary, uh, the costs of getting accurate survey data, good example, because everybody's going to want those same phone numbers. It's going to be huge. So I can't really speak to specifically what's happening. Given the time and the day, we can do that. The last time I did this, the day before I prepped for a radio show, the next day Trent Franks had resigned. <laughs> That's right. And Arizona is that right now. Yeah, we kind of got to give disclaimers here. We're recording on a Friday <laughs> at about 5.30 p.m. is right now. <laughs> Something might happen while we were talking. <laughs> get in and out of the Senate race one or two more times mm-hmm. before this goes public. So, Joe, any any predictions on on the year or either either legislatively here no i'm I'm not gonna get i'm not gonna get too out there with predictions especially since i felt really comfortable making predictions last go around and had a lot of them blown out of the water (laughs) but i think it is a really interesting climate right now um i can't help but chuckle a little bit when um uh, President Trump uh, denounced uh, Steve Bannon, and now you have Kelly Ward <laughs> saying, "Oh yeah, he never endorsed me." Bannon, so, who's, who's <laughs> yeah, Steve exactly. <laughs> Steve so, <laughs> so it's interesting, you know. Obviously, President Trump uh, is uh, a big influence out here, and I think that'll really uh, shine through on uh, the CD8 race with Phil Lovis because he's essentially Trump's guy. You know, um, everyone's saying it's between him and Debbie Lesko, so we'll we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go out there and, and go out on a limb and make any predictions. I'll let the I'll let the old guys 
do that for us. Yeah. This thing's on, so it's recording. <laughs> I don't want to do that. No. Right. Um, what about in terms of state uh, state here, uh, Dad? What's the you? What are the priorities, or what's the uh, what's the state legislature um, get a focus on? Do you think? Uh, whatever Governor Doug Ducey asks them to focus on. I, I have uh, never seen a governor uh, have such unchallenged control of uh, the agenda for state government as Doug Ducey. There's been equally as strong governors. Uh, Bruce Babbitt was a strong governor. Janet Napolitano was a strong governor. Um, Fife Symington was a strong governor. But all of them had rivals in the legislature um, for influence and legislators of consequence uh, that had their own agenda. Um, ever since Andy Biggs uh, left the Senate presidency and uh, ran successfully for Congress, there has not been um, a uh, comparable challenge to Ducey's uh, leadership. I expected that to develop last session. You, you rarely see that kind of a vacuum stick. I think if Debbie Lesko had stayed in, at the state legislative uh, level, she might have developed into that. I think if J.D. Mesnard hadn't been so focused on making the House of Representatives functional, hmm. uh, he is a policy guy. I think he might have arisen to that. Um, but Ducey's... Uh, priority is cl clear. Um, add funding to education, particularly for district schools. Uh, get the budget done. Um, create no messes that he has to deal with prior to running for re-election. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you will see the state legislative session look like. And, and water and opioids, too. Right. It seems like those are the two big fights that... that are definitely coming. Well, but I don't think opioids will be a fight. I mean, there, there will be an agenda. They'll do uh, most of it, um, and it will probably be bipartisan. Mm -hmm. uh, water may end up being a fight. Uh, the governor hasn't uh, handled that issue uh, well to date. Uh, there isn't the feeling of all being in this together that you ordinarily need if you're going to do something big on water. Mm -hmm. uh, he may uh, be able to create that, um, but that is one where he may get some kickback, um, particularly from legislators representing the rural areas. Well, see how that all plays out. Um, it's late on a Friday. Uh, you guys came by after, after work for a long, a long week, the first legislative uh, week. So Kevin and Joe, thank you very much for for dropping by the Thank podcast. You. It was a lot well, of thanks fun. Thanks for having us. Really looking forward to it. We'd love to do it again sometime. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thanks everyone for listening to The Political Notebook. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or any podcasting app.